as I'm doing that, I'll tell you guys a story. Uh, a couple of years ago, before the uh, economy uh, turned around, uh, there was a man who was looking for work, and um, he couldn't find work. He looked at the newspapers, he went online on Craigslist, and could never find any work at all. And he kind of came to his wits end when he realized that the bills started piling up and there wasn't money to pay for it. So he's just like, I need a job. I, I don't care what it is. I'll, I'll go do it. And so he continues his search and he continues looking for work. And one day as he's opening up the newspaper and he's, he sees an ad, an ad for a job listing at the Los Angeles Zoo. Now, one thing we need to know about this guy is he doesn't really like animals. And so the job description is a little bit vague, but he's like, you know what, it's a job, I'll apply for it, I'll just deal with the animals. And so he goes down to the zoo, he goes and fills out the job application, submits it, and heads home. When he gets home, about five minutes later, his phone starts to ring. At first, he thinks, well, it might just be a, a bill collector. I, I really don't want to pick it up. But the more he thinks about it, he's like, well, maybe it's the zoo calling me. Yeah, it's a little bit crazy, but maybe it's the zoo. So he, he, he picks up the phone, and it's the zoo. And they say, you know, we received your application. You seem like a, a qualified person for, for the position we are wanting to hire. Can you come in today? For an interview, he's like, well, yeah, I don't have a job, so I got nothing else to do. So he hops in his car and goes back down to the zoo. Uh, he finds the, the right people, and so he sits down for this job interview. And uh, halfway through the interview, they're really, oh, they, they really like the guy. They think he's a great guy, and they say, you know what? We really need to explain to you what this job you're applying for, because the description's a little bit vague, and we don't want you to, to not know what we're hiring you for. And so here's the situation. One of our exhibits, the gorilla exhibit, our gorillas have been sick. And so they haven't been as involved as we would like them to be. So what we would like for you to do is to put on a gorilla suit and pretend to be a gorilla. And the guy looks at him like, are you kidding me? Are you serious? That's what you want me to do? And they're like, yeah. That's what we're hiring you for. So he, he thinks about it. And the more he thinks about it, he, he realizes, well, I got bills to pay. And they really want to hire me. They're willing to pay me. And you know what? I don't know how long this job's going to last. I'll, I'll, I'll go do it. I'll, how hard can it really be? Um, so, he's, uh, so he says to them, yeah. I'll do it. Hey, can you, can you start tomorrow? Sure. So he goes back to the zoo the next day, puts on his gorilla suit, gets into the gorilla exhibit. Now, just him in the exhibit. There's no other gorillas, okay? It's just him there, and he's just kind of like, well, I don't know what to do. So he kind of sits there for a couple hours and is like, well, this is weird. And he starts moving around. After all, he kind of gets used to it. And the strange thing about all this is, the people who are watching him actually are enjoying him being a gorilla. Uh, and so after about a week of this, he, he starts to, to learn to, well, climb 
part of the tree. Uh, he swings on some of the, he swings on the ropes. He's getting better at it. About a week into this, he's getting really good. Now, one day he's swinging on the ropes and he gets a little too excited, a little too carried away and he swings himself out of the gorilla exhibit and into the exhibit next to him with bears. And he, he lands and he realizes that was not a smart move. He, he looks around and he's like, oh no, this is bad. He starts yelling for help and no one listens. No one notices. And he yells louder and louder and louder. And what he notices off, what he notices in the corner of his eye, there's a bear coming. And he's just like, oh no. And the closer and closer the bear gets to him, he starts yelling louder and louder and louder, and still no one's paying attention to him. So the bear gets about 10 to 15 feet away. And the bear says, in plain English, if you don't stop yelling, we are both going to get fired. <laughs> this is obviously not a real story. <laughs> Actually, I came across the story uh, a couple months ago. It's not even my story, but... I share this story with you because there are things in life that are not always as they seem to be. There are things in life that are not always as they seem to be. You know, we live in an age, a culture that has a lot of opinions about life. I came across a Facebook post last week. You find a lot of interesting things on Facebook. Um, so who was, uh, they were quoting uh, some speaker, I think. And this is what they said. I really believe that young people fundamentally want to be good people. But school and life does not always give them the practical tools to get out and do good. We need to teach goodness, we need to teach kindness, we need to teach love, we need to teach compassion, we need to teach empathy. You know, all these things sound good. They sound nice. The only problem is there's a, um, a slight flaw in their thinking. People say, he says, people fundamentally want to be good. And the reason why they are not good is because there's some outside pressure or outside influence that is preventing them from being good. And see, it's not really the individual's fault. It's, it's someone else's or something else. You know, like, like the man in the gorilla suit, I don't want us to be disillusioned about who we really are. Because if we fail to grasp who we really are, then we will fail to assess our situation properly. You know, the truth is we are not fundamentally good. You know, this morning we're going to look at a psalm, Psalm 14. So if you have a copy of God's word, I invite you to turn to Psalm 14. Uh, it's a psalm of David. Um, it paints a picture of us that we don't always like to see. And some don't even want to believe that it is true. 
Psalm 14 is a unique psalm. It's an interesting psalm. It's only seven verses. It's not very lengthy. But it's repeated quite often in the scriptures. A psalm 53 is actually almost a word-for-word copy of Psalm 14. Even in the New Testament, Paul quotes it, and we'll talk a little bit about that uh, later on. But I believe there's a reason why for all this uh, repetition. I believe God wants us to make sure that we truly understand who we are. So if you're still thinking about the gorilla suit, stop for a second, okay? Uh, I, I want you guys to get this point. If you guys don't remember anything I say to you this morning, remember this one thing, that all of humanity, that's all of humanity is in rebellion to God. But there is hope through trusting in him. There is hope through trusting in him. Now this psalm can be broken into three parts. So if you're looking for a roadmap, an outline for this message, here's your outline. We've got three points. Uh, verses one through three, our true nature. Verses one through three, our true nature. Verses four through six, our true consequence. Our true consequence. And verse seven, our true hope. Our true hope. So before we look at God's word, let's pray. Let's ask him to help us this morning. Oh, gracious Lord, we come to you um, dependent upon you, asking that uh, you would help us understand your word, that you would help us understand who we are, that we would see ourselves for who we really are, not for who we want to think, but who we are. Help me to speak clearly. Help me to speak slowly. Lord, praise all in your name. Amen. So if you haven't turned to uh, Psalms 14, I encourage you guys to turn to Psalms 14 and follow along as, as I read. To the choir master of David. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. They Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread? And do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You who shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. Our, our first point this morning is our true nature. In verse one, David opens up and he says, the fool says in his heart, 
there is no God. Uh, translators, let's say that we can also translate that by saying, no God for me. See, this is the fool's anthem. This is the fool's cry. And when we think of a fool, we think of someone who lacks sense. We think of someone who has some screws loose upstairs. You can probably think of a few people who are like that. Warren Wiersbe helps us out here, and he points out that there are three Hebrew words that can be translated as fool. So the first word uh, for fool would be a dull or unintelligent. That's kind of the fool we usually think of. The second one is the unreasonable fool. And lastly, uh, the brutish or insensitive fool. And that's the word that's being talked about here. Um, that's the Hebrew word Nabal. And that might sound familiar to you because there's actually a man in the Old Testament, 2 Samuel 25, who has that name. And he lives out that name because, well, he's a fool. But this word is unique because this fool does not lack knowledge. This fool does not lack intelligence. No, this fool flat out refuses to believe the truth. You know, it's that person who, who's walking down some railroad tracks. First off, if you're walking down railroad tracks, you shouldn't do that, okay? It's a bad idea. That's a foolish idea right there, okay? So this person's walking down railroad tracks, and off in the distance, they, they can see a reflection, a light, it looks like a train. But in their mind, that's ah, not a train. That's a car headlight. That's a street light. It's not a train. I'll just keep going. Uh, a couple seconds later, he hears the horn. He, he feels the ground rumbling underneath him, and everything around him is telling him, hey, you should get off the tracks. You should not be here. But yet he refuses to accept that that train is real. Now, does that mean that that train's not real anymore? It's just imaginary? No. If he stands there long enough, he will know that the train is very real. And we would call this person lots of different things. One thing we would call them is a fool. They knew the train was coming and they chose not to move. And this is what David is saying. That the fool is choosing to believe that God is not real. Or at least he does not act. In the New Testament, Peter describes this person in 2 Peter chapter 3. And he says, For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. They have everything they need right in front of them. They're just choosing to reject it. They're not missing the facts. They just don't want to believe the facts. We would call this person, no, well, an atheist. So we would call them. You know, Wikipedia defines atheism as the absence of belief or the rejection of belief. 
But atheism is not only the absence or rejection of God, but the practice of living as if God does not exist. Look what David says in the second half of verse one. He says, they are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There's none who does good. See, David gives us insight into the, uh, the effects of this fool's proclamation. He says they are corrupt. Their mind, their hearts are corrupt. They are ruined. They are spoiled. And we'll talk a little bit more about that word in a little bit. But their minds are corrupt. And because their minds are corrupt, their actions are going to follow through. And David says that they do abominable deeds, simply doing things that God hates. That's, that's all it means. So what does this all mean here? Is when you or I choose sin, when we choose to disobey God and whatever means that, that is, we at that moment are acting as if God does not exist. We are practically acting like the fool who says there is no God and I am him. David's not done here. He continues on. In verse two, he says, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of men. Those referring to those descendants from Adam and Eve, that's all of us, it's all of mankind. To see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. In verse three, they've all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There's none who does good, not even one. God's assessment of humanity is a bleak picture. It's described as turning aside. You know, one commentator described the term picturing a soldier who deserts his post. In like manner, all unconverted men are bent on deserting God. We are bent on deserting God, of going away from God. It's also described as corrupt. Because again, we see this cause and effect. Because they've deserted God, they are corrupt. Uh, Paul quotes this verse in Romans chapter three, and he uses the word worthless. Uh, in a sense, there's no redeeming value for them anymore. About a year ago, my wife and I were shopping at Winco, because food's cheap there. And uh, we're going through the aisles with our carts, bringing food into the cart and checking things off. And when we're done, we go to the checkout counter and we put our food onto the conveyor belt and then the clerk scans it. Then usually me and my wife are kind of going very quickly to bag the food because they don't bag your food for you there. Um, and so when it came to our turn to pay, I grabbed some money out of my pocket and I gave it to the, to the clerk. And when I got my change back, I noticed one of the bills looked a little bit odd, looked a little bit different. But we were in a hurry, so I just kind of folded the bills, put it in my pocket, went home. Well, when I got home, I put the change into the change jar and just kind of left it there for several months and, until we ran out of milk one, one day. 
And so we're making food in the middle of making food and realized, oh, we're out of milk. We didn't get milk right now. So I was like, well, I'll go to the store. I'll get some milk. So I go to the store, grab some milk, a couple other things too. I go to the checkout, checkout, checkout aisle and scan my milk, scan my items. And I grab this money in my pocket and I give the lady my money. And she looks at it and she gets out her fancy pen. You guys know what this is. They get a little pen out and they mark the bills and see if it's real or not. So she's marking my bills and she's marking one of them again. And again. And me, my ignorance here, this is great. I say, ma'am, is there, is there a problem? Like very confidently, like there should be a deal here. Like what, what's the problem? Why, why, what's slowing you down here? And she looks at me, looks at the bill, marks it again, looks at me and says, this isn't real. <laughs> and I'm like, again, in my ignorance here a little bit, can I have that bill back? <laughs> so I actually still have that bill, but yet I thought the entire time I had that, that that bill had some sort of redeeming value to it. And yet when it came to time to redeem it, it had no value whatsoever. It was worthless. And yet God's assessment of our hearts is that our hearts are worthless. They have no value to him. There's no redeeming value with them. And since there's no redeeming value, there's no ability to do good works anymore. Our hearts cannot produce good. We can't. You know, when I was growing up, um, probably like most kids growing up, when you did a good job on a test or your artwork looked good or your parents felt bad for you, uh, they would uh, place it on the refrigerator because everyone knows the refrigerator is the place of honor. And what God is saying in his assessment of mankind is there is nothing we can Nothing that he can place on his refrigerator door because there's nothing we can do to impress him. In the Old Testament, God is pictured in heaven looking down, examining his creation, searching out and examining their hearts. And every time he does this, the same conclusion happens. Turn to Genesis chapter six. In Genesis chapter six, the same scene is taking place. God is in heaven peering down and looking at his creation. And he's he's examining their hearts and, and his conclusion is they are evil. I'm gonna wipe them out. I'm going to flood the earth. And in Genesis chapter six, in verse 5, we, we see God's assessment of mankind. In verse 5, it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of his thoughts, of his heart, was only evil continually. It's interesting thing here. God does not just see our actions. God even knows our thoughts. He knows what we're thinking. Those thoughts that we try to hide from people, those thoughts we keep to ourselves, those thoughts that no one knows, 
Then we move a couple chapters to chapter 11. We come to another instance. We come to the Tower of Babel, where the people of the earth gather in one place, disobeying the command that God gave them to fill the earth. Instead, they decide to gather together in one place in a new city to build this tower to heaven. Apparently, they did not know how high heaven is from the earth. I love how one commentator described the situation here. He said, the tower is a symbol of human autonomy. And the city builders see themselves as determining and establishing their own destiny without any reference to the Lord. See, they wanted to be self-sufficient. They wanted to be their own God. They were saying the exact same thing that David says about them in Psalm 14, no God for me. In verse 5, chapter 11, it says, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. This tower is only the beginning of their wickedness. It's only the start. It's not the end. It's the start. So God sees what we do. God knows our hearts. But God also knows our condition better than we do. You know, the assessment that is made in verse 3 of Psalm 14 is sin has spread to all mankind. There's none who does good, not even one. You know, the phrase that we would use to describe this condition is called human depravity, which is simply a fancy phrase that simply means we are sinners by nature. That's all it means. We are sinners by nature. It is built into our DNA. You know, Steve Lawson unpacks this when he writes, the term depravity does not mean that fallen men are as wicked as they can be, but that sin affects every aspect of their being. From the crown of his head to the soles of his feet, man is radically corrupt. The sin nature is inherited at the moment of conception, causing all people to leave the womb with a propensity to sin already within themselves. Therefore, the entire world lives in active rebellion to the authoritative rule of God. Um, a couple of weeks from now, I'm going to meet my son face to face. And like most new and expecting parents, uh, we start to daydream. Start to think, what is my... What's my, what's my child? What's my son going to look like? And we had an ultrasound, I don't know, a couple months ago. I don't know. It looks like a normal, usual baby. It's grainy. It's, it's black and white. I really don't know. So I started daydreaming. Well, is he going to have my eyes or my wife's eyes? What, what color is his hair? What type of, 
What type of ears is he gonna have? What type of nose? We start daydreaming, kind of putting together in, in, in my mind. And, and one thing that I don't need to daydream about is I know that my son will be a sinner. That's who he is. That's who we all are. There's no children's book on how to sin <laughs> that he can chew on. <laughs> there's no classes. There's no videos. There's none of this. This is who we are. This is built into our DNA. And this is important to understand because if we re refuse to accept that we are sinners, that we are morally bankrupt before a perfect and holy God, then there is no hope for us. In Paul's letter to the Romans, he, he quotes part of Psalm 14 and as he explains to the, the, the churches in Rome his doctrine of depravity, which lays the groundwork for the gospel, because you can't be saved if you don't know what you're being saved from. In Romans chapter 3, verse 10, it says, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And Paul continues on here and he adds other Old Testament passages to support his, his, his arguments. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The, venom, the ven, venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And Paul climaxes his argument here in verse 23, which will sound familiar for a lot of us here. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of... Oh, you guys aren't that convinced, are you? Of God, that's what it is. That's Paul's, that's Paul's climax right there. That both Jew and Gentile, both black or white, both English speaking and German speaking, it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter where you're from, it doesn't matter what job you have or what job you don't have. We all fall short of the standard of God. We are broken, we are corrupt. We are in desperate need of help. And God's assessment of us is that we are condemned. And because we are condemned, there's a consequence. So for those who are taking notes this morning, that's our second point this morning, our true consequence. Verses four through six. Our true consequence. In verses four through six, David compares the outcome of the evildoers, that's those who continue on the path of foolishness, that David has started at the beginning of this psalm, and for the first time in this chapter, it's not a long chapter, but in the first time in this chapter, we get a glimmer, we get a glimpse of hope. 
that there's another way, that we don't have to choose this route of foolishness, that there's another route that we can, that we can take. And verse four, it says, have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the name of the Lord? There they are in great terror. For God is with the generation of the righteous. For you would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Verse four is a rhetorical question. Um, the question is being asked, do these evildoers not understand of what path they're going down? Do they not realize what they are choosing, what they are doing, what's gonna happen to them? And the obvious answer is no, they don't. They have rejected God. They have failed to assess their situation correctly. And instead of calling out for God, instead of begging God, they devour his people. This devouring is described as they eat bread. This is something that they don't even realize that they're doing. Um, best way I've heard this explained is when, when you go to a restaurant, usually like a fancier restaurant, not McDonald's, that's not a restaurant, that's not real food. Um, when you go to a sit-down restaurant, and usually the waiter will come by and bring you a basket of bread. Uh, and usually within seconds, seems like it, that basket of bread just disappears. And so when you're going and reaching in for what you think is your eighth piece of bread, and you realize, what happened to the bread? Where did it all go? Who ate it all? Realizing you ate it all. But you didn't realize it just because it's so good. See, that's the idea here. The evildoers don't even think about it. And this really should come to no surprise that the righteous or the believers uh, are persecuted uh, for their faith. And really, this isn't an attack on, on them to say. It's more of an attack on God. The evildoers aren't done yet. Aren't done yet at all. In verse six, the evildoers will shame or frustrate or hinder the plans of the poor. That's God's people right there. Evildoers slow down. They, they, they hinder the righteous. But what we see here is that the evildoers, they don't win. They don't win at all. So if you go back to verse five, we see the evildoers experience great terror. And Gerald Wilson writes, the wicked who refuse to acknowledge Yahweh, either in actuality or practicality, will be overwhelmed with dread and destruction by the very one whose existence they deny. God is the protector of the poor and will bring to judgment the oppressive deeds of the wicked. Basically, the actions of the evildoers will be judged. And we know how they'll be judged when we go to the New Testament, to Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. You got a little better there. Yeah, it's death. The consequence for their actions is death. 
the evildoers in their pride of self-righteousness say, no God for me, are forced to face the God that they thought didn't exist and will be destroyed by him. Throughout this chapter, we have, we have been faced with a clear assessment of who we are. We have all turned aside. We are all corrupt. We all fail to do good works. And because of that, we are condemned to death. And that brings us to our last point, point number three our true hope. Because David doesn't leave us here hanging. He, he moves his eyes to God. And he looks at his true hope. You know, what we see in verse four is even though um, all are condemned, God has his people. Verse five, his people are described as a generation of the righteous. And instead of being in great terror of this same God, God is with them. But God's not just with them, God's also their refuge. It seems like every time I get an opportunity to open up God's word for you guys on a Sunday morning, I share this with you, what someone shared with me long ago, that we can take the promises of God's word and make them our own. We can take the promises of God, God's word and make them our own. We have two great promises right here. I'll explain that for you guys. Is God is with believers. God is with believers. You know, I don't know what you guys are facing this week or this month or even this year. I, I, I don't know. But God does know. Because God is with you. See, it doesn't matter how hard or how difficult or, or how strenuous or how distant you might think God is. He's there. I'm reminded of what David writes in Psalm 23, verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. David doesn't fear. David's not anxious. David not, is not worrying. For you are with me. That's a powerful verse right there. It's a powerful promise. But God's not done there. God's also our refuge. He's the only place where we're going to find rest. That we're going to find security. We're not going to find that in people. We're not going to find that in relationships. We're not going to find that in money or in vacations or in our abilities. But we'll find that in God. Psalm 61.3 says, For you, that's God, have been my refuge. Listen, listen to how this refuge is described. As a strong tower against the enemy. Or Psalm 62, 8. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. 
But that's not what David's, David has so much more to say. In verse seven, he says, oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. David is longing for the day. He is longing for the day that all this evil will cease, will come to an end, and God will make all things right. You know, his hope was not in the merits of what man can do. David knew God's assessment of humanity, and David knew it wasn't good. David's hope was in the fact that God would provide that salvation. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. What David longed for has come and will come back ultimately to restore everything. But he has come and he has restored our hearts. God brought this salvation out of Zion and his name is Jesus. In the book of Romans, we spent a lot of time there, looking at a couple of verses there. But in the book of Romans, Paul, he, he communicates the gospel to these churches. In Romans 5, 8, it says, but God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still fools, Christ died for us. God was not waiting for us, for our hearts to, to change, to call out to him. He already knew our situation and he provided a way. While we were still fools, he provided a way. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, for our sake, he made him to be sin." who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. We don't have to be in great terror of this God, like the evildoers are. We don't have to be. Through the death of Jesus, God can take our corrupt, our worthless hearts, who have no redeeming value, who have nothing good to offer to God, and he transforms it, and he makes it right. He makes it new. And we can have this in Romans 10.9, this foreign righteousness, not this righteousness of ourselves, but this righteousness that God gives us. We can have this, and he says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and, and believe in your hearts that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You know, I don't know where you guys are spiritually this morning. I know in a room of this size and of a group of, of, of this size, that there are some who still play the fool, who think in their pride, in their, uh, in their rejection of the truth, that I don't need God. I don't need this. I can do it all on my own. What you do not realize is that the one 
you reject is the one that will condemn you. You know, this morning we've looked at the depravity of mankind and our need for hope. And we can find that hope in Jesus Christ. You know, as we bring this to a, to a close, I, I want to leave you guys with, a, with an excerpt from the Gospel Primer. It's a wonderful book. We give the booklet out uh, to our visitors as a gift because it clearly communicates the gospel uh, it explains our hopelessness as sinners before God and the hope that he gives us through his son. Listen to what it says. Yet I could not fail God much worse than I've done, ignoring his glory for mine I have run. I've spurred a life under his wisdom and care, begrudged him the throne and pretended me there. A prideful, lust-laden path I've trod, completely condemned by God's law in its whole. I have nothing to offer to ransom my soul, but wonders of wonders so great to behold, my God chose to save me with methods so bold. What I could not render, God fully has done, and doing, he rendered it all through his son. He sent Christ to die on the cross for my sin, to suffer my anguish. That Jesus was willing his life to lay down for one such as I, who had spited God so. Amazed and blessed, it makes me to know that greater a lover is no man than he who laid down his life for a sinner like me. In saving God, did also justify me, counting me righteous by his own decree, declaring me guiltless of all my sin and bringing his wrath against me to an end. His wrath, Christ appeased in full brunt on the tree, so now Christ relates to me only with grace. The former wrath banished without any trace, and each day I am made a bit more as I should, his grace using all things to render me good. Let's pray. God, you, you are holy. You are perfect. You are good. And as we reflect upon this psalm and, and we see your assessment of, of us, and Lord, it is a dark picture is a picture of our failures, of who we are, who we naturally are before you. And we are not good. God, I, I pray. I pray if there's anyone here who, who continually plays the role of the fool, who thinks that none of this matters, I pray, Lord, that you would show them who they really are through your word. That they would realize their helpless state that they are in. And their hearts would change. And they would cry out to you for help. And they, that they would 
repent of their sins, of their foolish ways, and they would accept you as their Savior who has delivered them from their foolish ways. God, I pray that, that, that you would do that. I pray that we'd be encouraged to, to take the promises of your word and believe them and put them into practice, knowing that you are near and that you are our refuge. I want to pray this all in your name. Amen.